The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. May not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The other day I was speaking with some Baptist friends of mine. We were having a classic infant baptism versus adult baptism conversation, maybe a debate. Proponents for adult baptism will say that the biblical pattern is that those who are of accountable age will hear the gospel, believe the gospel, repent of their sins, and be baptized as a sign of their new life in Christ. Indeed, you do see that pattern in the New Testament. Proponents of infant baptism will say that in the New Testament, there are whole households uh, baptized, which would have included children. You have circumcision in the Old Testament of eight-day-year-old babies as a pattern that is established. And... Perhaps most importantly, God's grace is given to us really as passive recipients and not as active deciders, whether we are children or adults. It may surprise you to hear that I actually will concede there are good arguments for adult baptism or believer's baptism. It's not like there are no good arguments for it at all. And even though Lutherans baptize children, if and when we do baptize adults by the grace of God, well, we still would practice many of the same things. We would expect that an adult who's coming to faith would repent of their sins, that they would not continue in ongoing sins of a, a public nature for sure. Of course, we don't always know what's going on in the hearts of men. Uh, we would also instruct these adult adults to be baptized in the basics of the Christian faith. You know, they should know what they're getting themselves into. But at the end of the day, I, I still affirm infant baptism or really understanding baptism as an act of God that we receive as, as passive recipients. For the reality for all Christians is that we don't need to just repent once of our sin and, and then be baptized as a sign of our coming to Christ, but rather, I think we could all agree that repentance 
is our daily calling and a habit and a daily way of life. Perhaps Martin Luther's most famous document, the 95 Theses he put on the door of the, uh, of the church in Wittenberg, it began the Reformation, they say. Well, it begins with the following thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, some context is important there. The Catholic Church had translated the word repent as do penance, not as repent. In other words, when the word in the New Testament shows up, and the, the Greek word is metanoia, but it had been translated into Latin, and from that Latin word, they translated it as do penance. Luther took it back to the original Greek, and he said, It's not that it says do penance, it says repent. Now what's the difference? Well, penance is the second part of a uh, three-part operation that is a sacrament in the Catholic Church that we call confession, right? You would go to the priest, you would confess your sin. The priest would hear that confession and then give you penance to do. Upon doing that penance, then you would be absolved of your sin. And so the entirety of this call to repent on the Christian's life in the Roman Catholic setting became go to confession, then do your penance, and then you can be absolved. Luther, in understanding that the the Greek in the call from Christ to repent was far bigger than that, eventually led to the Desacramentalizing, is that a word? The desacramentalizing of confession or absolution. Now recall that Luther was sort of pathologically neurotic about his sin. He would spend hours in the confessional trying to list each and every sin he had ever committed. The, the story is that he once got up from the confessional booth and walked out of the room and turned right back around and went back to the confessional because he had a sinful thought on his way out the door. He was afraid, you see, that if he died with a single sin still attached to his soul, that the gates of heaven would not be opened for him. And so he would spend hours nitpicking his own heart and mind and soul so that nothing would get in the way, so that he would not be weighed by God's great justice scales, and be found wanting. What he eventually would come to recognize is that in his baptism, he was given a gift from God. God had made a promise to him in his baptism. Yes, his baptism was indeed a sign, and it was also more than a sign. It was God claiming, and now everything I'm about to say about our brother Martin, I want you to hear for yourself. It was God claiming Martin as his own child, and it was giving to Martin a safe home to which he could return when he had sinned and fallen away. In that baptism, Martin was giving credit for the death of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, which was the payment for the penalty of his sins. His righteousness then, 
was accomplished by trusting in Christ, not by naming each and every sin and then doing penance that the priest prescribed. What Luther lacked then, before about 1515, was simple trust. Trust that Christ could forgive him and trust that his baptism was sufficient. And this was, for Luther, it's kind of like the Jelly of the Month Club. It's the gift that just keeps on giving. Luther's baptism was available to him now every single day. And he would need it every single day because he would sin every single day. And that is why the call on the Christian's life is to repent every single day. And that's why I can defend not just infant baptism, but really understanding baptism at any age as God's active work on us, the passive recipients of God's grace. That is, baptism as a gift that the repentant sinner will need daily for a true and honest walk with Christ. So yes, it is true that in the New Testament, we definitely see a connection between repentance and baptism. That should be the expectation for any and all adults who are to be baptized in the church at any time. And yet, we can all see, I think, that we need to repent far more than just once. It's our daily calling and habit and way of life. Well, what about our texts this morning? Well, our first reading, of course, was the Ten Commandments. And you have no doubt noticed that we have made them for Lent a part of our confessional rite. So I thought it might be appropriate to speak to them a little bit. Now, these commandments, of course, we know are only a fraction of the law of God that was given to Moses. We know the, the law included many civic commands and uh, sac uh, sacrificial commands in the temple and so forth. And yet, we know that these commandments, though given to Moses many centuries ago, still apply to us. Jesus certainly still thinks they are contemporary because he rather famously elaborates on these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And then he goes on to use these commandments to probe the hearts of men. So these commandments are not just about actions from which we should refrain, but they can and should be used so that we can see what is tempting us and troubling us and causing us to lose our relationship with God. They are a tool in the same way an immovable boulder is a tool against which we can push and pry and use to be honest with ourselves and God. And that is how we should continue to use these commandments then in our lives, which is why we say them during our confessional rite, which I borrowed, by the way, from the Episcopalian or Anglican Book of Common Prayer. We use them to assess ourselves, to find our weakness, to admit them, and then to trust in Christ. Trust that his death was really sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust that what he did on the cross, 
He really did for you. Trust that in your baptism, you have a sign and a gift to which you can return because God really did something there. God was really acting on your life there. And he really gave something to you that is always yours. If anyone ever thought that they only needed to repent once, well, then I can understand how disappointed they would be to find that sin was still in their life the next day. Because we don't just repent once. We repent daily. And we trust in Christ daily, too. And Jesus forgives. He really does. No matter the sin, no matter how many, no matter how great, Jesus forgives. And so every day is like a new day, and every day is a time to start over, and that is just who Jesus is. Jesus is also the Holy Son of God, who desires that you would truly repent. In the story of the turning over of the tables in the temple, we see that Jesus is visiting the house of God, and like a good priest would do from time to time, he's making an inspection, and he does not like what he sees. Now, during Lent, I'm sure you have noticed that paragraph we add at the end of the confessional rite. It's always uncomfortable to say it. I'm sure it's uncomfortable to hear it as well. You know, by the same authority, I say to the impenitent and unforgiving that if they do not repent of their sins, then their sins are still counted against them. You know, I took that from the 1958 Lutheran hymnal, By 1978, the hymnal you have in your pew, the green one, it wasn't there anymore. And it'll never be probably in any hymnal ever published again. My, how much changed in a few years. But what we see when Jesus visits the temple is that Jesus really does care about ongoing sins. So it's perfectly appropriate for the church to say, if you do not repent of your sins, then they will be counted against you. That's basic Bible teaching. And because the story of Jesus turning over the temples is recorded at different times in Jesus' ministry, it's quite possible that it happened twice. I think that's the case. And that explains a lot. You see, in John's gospel, it happens in the second chapter, right at the beginning of his ministry. But in all the the three other gospels, it's the last week of Jesus' life, when he's back in Jerusalem and he's hanging out in the temple. It, It happens just before he's crucified. Well, did it just happen once and they got something wrong, or did it happen twice? Again, I think what's happening here is an inspection. It's a before and after. And unfortunately for the money changers, there was no change of heart in between these two times. And that's why we say those words. Because, you see, grace is free, and it is undeserved, as is any gift, But that doesn't mean that you're entitled to it. If you assume it, you don't get it. But if you repent, there is a buffet of grace awaiting you. So don't be the money changers who, having heard when Jesus first showed up at the temple in John 2, he shows up and he says, stop making my father's house a a den of thieves. And having heard that, they do not change their ways. Let's not be like the money changers. Rather, make repentance our daily habit so that when Christ makes his second visit to earth, 
he will find us doing God's work. Amen.